Live from beautiful Ashland, Oregon, I am Pleiadian Emissary of Life, Caroline Ra. Thank you so much for joining me today. Welcome to Spirit of the Dawn. It is our first summer here in Ashland, and I am loving the heat and the sun. Ashland is such a welcoming community. My kids and I are enjoying our summers tremendously. Lots of great food and music, meeting so many new smiling faces filled with warmth and humor. Our own transformation as a family mirrors this beautiful time on our planet of personal and planetary transformation. And what I am learning on my journey is the art of graceful surrender to allow the magic to weave its thread throughout all that I do. My guest today is an expert in surrender, magic, alchemy, and life. At the height of his career, artist Jerry Winstrom destroyed all of his art and embarked on a new journey, one of surrender and trust. He shares his fascinating story in his book, The Inspired Heart, An Artist's Journey of Transformation. Jerry enters people's lives when they are ready for true transformation, and I could not put his book down and devoured it. I am delighted that Jerry Winstrom is here with us today to share his stories, his wisdom, and his magic. I welcome to Spirit of the Dawn, Jerry Winstrom. Thank you so much, Jerry, for being here with us today. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you for having me, and thank you to your audience. Oh, yes. It's, it's amazing. Now, you live where it's amazingly beautiful. You're on Whidbey Island in Washington. I am. So uh, tell us a little bit about Whidbey Island and what that's like living on an island. Well, it's a pretty incredible place, I must say. You know, it's a, a lot. We're at the south end of the island, which is the, the island is actually like a magnet. The north end, which is about 80 miles away, has a military base. So that's a whole other reality. And the south end is our many creative, conscious people. And there's a great community that kind of grew up around the what was the Chinook Learning Center, now the Whidbey Institute. So it's a pretty beautiful, great community to live in with a lot of interesting people doing interesting things. There are certainly a lot of artists and creative people, writers and authors, that kind of thing. Uh, Jerry, but you didn't you didn't always live on Whidbey Island, did you, huh? No, I'm here 22 years from New York. And it and took I, a while it took a while to get to Whidbey. It was a journey, wasn't it? Yes, a long big journey. <laughs> long big journey. Um so you grew up um near New York City but not in New York City, right? Yes, Nyack, New York is where I had my loft and did uh, my art life mostly. And tell us about those early years as, as an artist and, and the what your world was like. Well, I was very driven as a young painter. I had produced an enormous body of work, you know, by the time I was 29. And uh, I think art for me, I grew up in a poor, mostly black neighborhood where we as whites were the minority. It was a sort of interesting turnaround. And so, you know, as, a, as an identity, I really latched on to art. And I think it became something of a false god. So in 1979, at the sort of height of that driven creative career, 
I fasted for a month and I and I decided to let it all go and find out who I was separate from all of that. And I destroyed all my paintings. I gave all my money away and decided to trust life just as it was dealt from the hand of God, you might say, from that point on. And I lived that way all the way until coming to Whidbey Island in 1988. And it's been a pretty incredibly magical journey. All I know is we are much larger than that thing we think we are because we do. <laughs> there's a there's a there's a sort of identity or a reality much larger than our small idea of ourselves, and that, that's that was the ultimate gift of giving myself to that surrender. At the time that you did all this, there was a film being made about your world, which is so uh, a great idea because it kind of captured what your life was like at that time before the art was destroyed. And then at the time the film was coming out or being finished being made, you actually destroyed your art. Yes, the film by uh, award-winning photographer, filmmaker Mark Sedan, was, um, it was supposed to be about the art. I mean, he was very interested in my life as an artist. And so it started out being about the art. And before the film was done is when I had that kind of, you know, epiphany, you might say, and gave myself to that surrender. And so the film, he had already filmed a lot of the work, and there was a lot that wasn't filmed. But, you know, and then the film ultimately became about the story, about, you know, why I did what I did. And I felt like because I was inspired to do what I did by letting it all go, that he was able to translate that into that first film, and, and now that film has been incorporated into a, a film that Parabola magazine did about 10 years ago called In the Hands of Alchemy. So it's all together now in one big, in one big documentary film that is still out called In the Hands of Alchemy. I watched so it. So the work exists and it doesn't exist yeah. at the same time because, you know, the film has a lot of the work in it, but it also, it's all gone. It's great that the early art was seen. It tells the story so beautifully. It's, 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 it's more of a fuller story for people to appreciate that the earlier film was made. It's, it's really, it's helpful actually. Uh, and I did watch, uh, the beautiful movie in the hands of alchemy, the way of trust and transformation, uh, last, um, no, what's the, what's the new movie called? Um, the art and life of Jerry Wenstrom. Yeah. No, that that was the first. That, the, the Art and Life of Jerry Wenstrom was the first film. The new one is In the Hands of Alchemy. Okay, yeah. It's uh, really wonderful, and it's a beautiful story, and that can be found at your website, which is um, handsofalchemy.com, I believe. And, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, let's talk about those years when you were surrendering and trusting and fasting and all the beautiful people that you touched throughout that time. In some ways you were isolated, but in other ways you were affecting so many people. Well, what I gave myself to after letting it all go was just simply being in the moment with whatever came. And every imaginable experience came. I, I think what I gave myself to and didn't know it at the time was all my limitations because, you know, every imaginable experience came up. 
you know, certainly all of my fears and, and small ideas of myself came up for reevaluation and challenge. And I think part of the journey, a big part of it, was staying completely present, even sometimes in terrifying situations like street violence or, you know, or hunger or the things that I had to deal with, and to find the miracle at the core of all experience. There's something about when you give yourself completely to the moment with no more props, no more, nothing more to hide behind, no bank account, no guarantees of anything physical. There's something about being that kind of vulnerable and trusting that I think really accesses the, the miraculous, you know, and things I couldn't have lived the strange life that I did for as long as I did if somehow that there wasn't the hand of God in there keeping it all going because I certainly didn't have the strength. I didn't have, I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't clever enough. I wasn't lovable enough to have anybody want to take care of me. It was totally based on the one miracle after another. And, you know, I, I love the um, idea that uh, Yogananda puts out that, that is, he says, to set out on any holy purpose, which in a sense art was for me, set out on any holy purpose and to die along the way is to succeed. And I think that metaphoric death just took everything I had invested in and sanctified it. And in some way, it has all been given back. I mean, I have a whole new huge body of work and, and all that I loved about my life and was trying to achieve and sort of at some level failed because of, you know, will, intelligence, and good intention is never quite good enough. I think it has been given in another form in the surrender. When you um, approach situations that would be potentially dangerous or fearful and you went in with trust, there's so many wonderful stories that you tell where there'd be a gang approaching you in different situations and you went into it, it was like you took a deep breath and just kind of saw the beauty in everyone. Well, and I was also shaking in my boots. I think part of it is you, you have to be wise like the devil. You have to know that, you know, this is very dangerous. I mean, but the point is, I didn't create these situations. I didn't go out looking for challenges. You know, I didn't climb mountains, be, you know, because they were there. I simply, these were things that came up in life, walking down the street, surrounded by a gang. And, you know, and, and the way that things just resolve themselves by just giving myself to what I was given. And that was good and bad. You know, like I had beautiful people doing beautiful things for me as well. And I treated it all as if it were dealt from the hand of God. I didn't discriminate. I was present with what happened. I mean, like one of the stories in that is in my book that you're talking about, you know, like one day I was because I fasted a lot, I when I didn't have food, I didn't eat, and I would go, my, I, you know, sometimes you have a lot of energy fasting, and I would go for walks any time of the day or night, and walking at, you know, late at night, like two in the morning, I'm walking by the YMCA, and this gang comes out and asks me for a cigarette, and I said I don't smoke, and I keep walking down the road. And they called me back and said, so I, so I, you know, it was a moment where I knew, you know, I could keep walking, but it would have been a fear-based choice. And I thought, you know, this is where I'm at. Here's what's being given. I turned around and went back. And the, and the, 
ringleader with a cigarette between his teeth stands right in my face and says, got a match? And I said, no, I'm sorry, I don't smoke. And I continued walking further this time. And he calls me back again. And so I walk back. And so he, so again, he says, well, what do you have? And I used to carry these little boxes of Superman brand raisins. They had a picture of Superman on the box. And for the kids in the neighborhood, they all knew me and would come running when they saw me. So I sat, there were some women sitting on the stoop at the YMCA. And I just set a box of raisins down in front of each person. And I handed the leader a box of raisins and, and walked away. Because that was all I had. And as I was walking, I hear the raisins hit the street beside me. And he calls me back angry this time. He says, get back here. So the, again, a moment of terror, but I trusted the moment. I turned around and walked back and the gang surrounded me. And the ringleader, in, you know, right in my face, angry, aggressive, says, you know, who the hell do you think you are giving me these raisins? And he was just, you know, really aggressive. And it was a moment, like I said, I grew up in a poor, um, mostly black neighborhood. And I really had a sense of what the young black kids were going through and why they were behaving the way they were. Because I, in some way, I was, you know, it was more my culture than, than you know, than white culture was. And, the, and the, you know, and the poverty and the difficulty. And I knew these people. They were my own. They were my family growing up in a certain sense. And I was able to access that deep love and respect I have for the kids I grew up with, the people I grew up with. And coming from that place of just feeling who they were and why they and what it was all about, I was able to access this love. And, and it wasn't so much what I said, but from the place I was coming from, I simply said, I, I'm just trying to, I was just trying to be kind. And when I said it, it was said with emotion and sincerity and the women jumped up from the stoop and they surrounded me and they pushed the men away and they said, you be on your way now. They don't mean you any harm. <laughs> and as I was walking away, I looked and the ringleader just had this look of pain on his face because the women he was trying to impress had defected and come over to my side. But that's an example of how within the situation itself, sort of salvation, you might say, is written in if you trust it. But again, I wouldn't have chosen a situation like that. I wouldn't have walked wholeheartedly into it, but it was a given. And I think that is the story of my journey, to be with what is and not think you can improve on the simplicity and the perfection of reality as it is dealt. Jerry, thanks for sharing that story. It was one that I had enjoyed a lot in the book. You have such a special relationship with children, and you seem to also when you were a child. So, um, and that has continued even now throughout your adult life, but you don't have your own children, but you seem to have this special magic with children. Uh, can we talk about that? Yes. I mean, well, in some way, <clears throat> I don't have children, maybe for selfish reasons, because I always wanted to be my own child. I think if any, if there's any reason I relate well to children, because I'm one of their own, I've maintained my own <laughs> childhood. You know, I haven't had to become the adult to 
to allow a child to be a child, you know, which I totally honor the, the, the wonderful people who become parents and, and do that. But it wasn't my choice. You know, I wanted to make, I wanted to live my own childhood. I wanted to be that kind of free and let, you know, in some way the mystery be my, be my parent, you know, be the one who carries my reality. And I just always felt like, you know, in some way I couldn't necessarily have both. I don't know that that's true or not. It was just my intuitive sense that I wanted to be the freedom and the beauty that I saw in children. And if there's a way, if there's anything children, if it's true to some extent what you say, you know, that children, I have a special relationship with children. I don't know that that's true. But if there's anything there, it's because I'm one of their own. You know, I'm not the adult coming down on them or <laughs> holding holding their discipline for them. I, I have become my own child. Um, and... Uh you, yeah, there's so many beautiful stories with children and how you touch so many people's lives and people who touched your lives and all the things. The book's absolutely amazing. Um, we're talking with artist Jerry Winstrom, who's written a beautiful book, The Inspired Heart, an Artist's Journey of Transformation. You were celibate through all those years by choice. Um, and what did you gain from that? Well... I felt like for the, you know, the re, if, if there's such a thing as a reason behind it, I don't know. But the reason, let me just go into the reason for it was I felt like I couldn't lay my strange life on anybody, on a relationship. You know, it's like I was living this life with the mystery and there could be nothing in between that. And so I, you know, that was sort of what was the given and what it felt like I needed to do. I think what I learned to become in a certain sense was my own feminine, you know, instead of, you know, there was this, I think there's this sort of obligation, at least mentally for many men to think that they have to sort of like always be, you know, serve the polarity of the masculine, whether it's, you know, misguided, you know, as a sort of sexual being or, you know, always sort of being on that kind of um, hunt in a certain sense or always looking to relationship work. I needed to let go of all that and in some way, you know, ultimately be completely free with in the presence of women. And I had a beautiful, I had a dance studio across the hall from my law with all these beautiful women. And, and so I think what I learned was to be one of their own, to be able to be in the presence of women with all the flirty energy that gets running and all of that and stay centered in my own being and make women feel as, and myself feel completely comfortable as human beings and not as men and women. And the greatest thing I learned was my own feminine. And, you know, because of that, I feel like I can do my marriage now because I know how to be the, I know how to be my own feminine. I don't have to lay that on my wife to carry that polarity for me. There's a freedom in that, and there's an ability to understand and to be present in a very feminine way. I mean, I, there's a, there's a, I, I think it was uh, Ramakrishna says, know the male, be the female, because we're all receptive in the eyes of God. And I think, I think a struggle for men is not that they're, is not that they're not masculine enough, is that they don't know enough about the feminine to stop being masculine. 
So that's what I learned to be, I could, you know, to have that color on the palette. So if the moment calls for that particular color blue, you have it. Or if it calls for the masculine or the sword or that kind of, you know, external expression, you have that as well. But the gift of that, those years of celibacy was, was my own feminine. Jerry, do you think the same could be true for women to develop part of their masculine? Absolutely. But I also don't think it's about necessarily because a lot of men have too much masculine and they need to learn the feminine themselves or a lot of men have too much feminine. I was just talking to a guy yesterday whose whose whole struggle is he's carried too much of the feminine in his marriage and the marriage is falling apart, you know, because he has to develop his masculine, which he's wise enough to know and he's working on that. So I think the balance is important and it's not necessarily women have to become more masculine and men have to become more feminine. As I said, it could be the complete opposite. You know, if you look at a lot of marriages, you will see the women, some, some of the women carry more of the masculine than the, the men do and the opposite. It's really about us being whole beings then. It's absolutely imperative. Not only that, I think it's a requirement of our time. I think our parents were able to live sort of half lives, you might say, where we each carried a piece that, you know, together they completed the circle. That's not working for our generation. I think that's why there are so many divorces. We're, you know, there's a kind of almost evolutionary requirement of the day that we become whole. It's not even an option. It's a requirement. If we're going to live happy, healthy lives, I think it's so upright now for all of us. Yes. Um, at the time that you, it's, it's a really cute story how you ended up on Whidbey Island. And if we could talk about uh, your friend and the little gift she gave you in the fish and how your journey then took a whole new direction. Yeah, well, the, the timing was perfect. Um, the friend you talk about was uh, a wonderful nun, Sister Adele Myers, who was also an artist, and her and this uh, a Jewish artist friend, uh, David Weinrib, started this amazing art gallery in the basement of a convent called Thorpe Intermedia. It used to get New York Times coverage. I mean, they really did a huge gallery running. But one day I was helping set up a show there with Adele, and, and she handed me this little fish purse and it was full, it was around Christmas time, and it was, she knew how I was living my life, I'd already given up my art, and it was full of money, and she said, this is a gift from the nuns and I to you, and that's how I was able to come out to Washington State, visiting my friend, and um, connected with the Whidbey Institute, we did an artist-in-residence program with a summer festival they were having, and, and, and worked with adults, and I just connected with this community and ended up staying here. But, you know, it's like that's how I lived my life. If money came, there was always something that was to be done with it, either give it away or, or eat that day. Or, I mean, I totally lived in the moment. But it was, but the timing was perfect because, you know, I feel like it, being back east in New York, it was like, I was learning the steps of the dance and, and it was grueling and difficult and scary. You know, I had to, like I said, come up against all my limitations and everything small I wanted to take refuge in. 
got blown out by experience and, you know, including family shadow issues and everything else. And yet the learning experience were like learning the steps of the dance. I feel like coming here, the timing was so perfect because it was like the return to the world. And that's when the music began playing and I, and it became a dance, you know? And I feel like, and that, and this is where I began public speaking. The, the film was made about my life. I was asked to write a book, which is the book you're talking about. You know, I began speaking publicly, and, and now there's a feature film being made about my life uh, by a Danish uh, filmmaker. So it's all, you know, it's been the return to the world coming here, and it's only natural. You know, I don't think letting go of the world is good or bad. I just think we need to do what we need to do and follow the journey wherever it takes us. That's where my journey took me, and then it will always take us back to the world. I think, you you know, it, it's classic that anyone on a spiritual path, and we're all on one, whether we call it that or not, is going to end up some way or another in the desert. But then it's a, there's a time where you receive the gifts of that emptiness and you learn the territory, you learn the language, you, you develop the conversation with the mystery, and then you bring it back to the marketplace, back to the world. And I still don't do anything about money, but a, but a lot of money comes and things still work and I'm still doing what I'm doing, but it's very much in the world now. And as I said, I have another huge body of, of work, sculptures now, which your audience can see on our website as well. Okay. this I would love to discuss the art that you're doing. I absolutely love it. Now, do you call them box beings? Is that what you call them? <laughs> Oh, people always ask what I call them. I just call them bo my boxes. They're very, you know, I mean, basically, they're from six to ten feet tall. They're all sort of, they're like life-size, human scale. They all have beings inside and out. They're mechanical devices. They do whimsical things. And the kind of uh, meaning, you might say, that I sort of see in retrospect is that they're all very coffin-like, and and yet if you can approach them and interact with them, because they all have mechanical devices, some deliver gifts, some make crazy sounds. One even has a steam engine. You light a fire in the belly, and a steam engine gets going, and a mask comes out and looks around. It does Tibetan chanting. But if you can approach these these death-like coffin-like boxes they actually deliver gifts and they, they're humorous and there's the gift in the death experience. And that has been so much the template of my journey. Walk into everything that looks like death, like that street gang story. You walk into it and what you find is that there's beauty in there, there's joy in there, there's liberation in there. So I didn't plan it, but I see that that's what's going on in my art. It happened inadvertently in a certain sense. Now, you have a special relationship with um, found objects and dumps. Um, <laughs> and it seems to be a place of, of magic for you. And um, tell us about the dump. <laughs> well, I do everything. as It's sort of like an extension of my life. I work with what is. And, you know, I mean, I know so many artists who have these elaborate studios with the best art materials, and they're not necessarily doing all that much. 
And, you know, I, I find something that inspires me and I take off from there and then something else falls into place. And then, you know, it just sort of builds on what's, a, what's available, just like my life, just like my relationships. I, I take what is given and every once in a while an object will just sing and I'll just, and I'll run with it and something amazing can come out of it. And I think, I know that when I'm awed by my own creation, that's not an ego thing. It's more like I'm I'm in dialogue with the mystery here. And when I'm thrown off my idea of art and idea of creation and something comes through that's related to everything else in my life, that leaves a, a sort of awesome experience within myself. And I feel like when we can create from that place, that product that enters the world will create that same kind of awe because it's larger than the creator. It's larger than the stinky little me as an artist thinking I'm doing something important. You know, there's a mystery that comes through the mystery lived. What so my relationship with the dump <laughs> is where I get a lot of my stuff. And the people at the dump, they know me and they they get excited when they find something that I they think I will like. And I've had them all here, and I made them. There, there are a lot of these really fun, wonderful women that work at our Whidbey Island dump. It's a, actually a big recycle place as well. And I had them all here, and I showed them the film, and they saw all the art and saw what I did with their with the things I buy there. So they've all become wonderful friends, and <laughs> that's my relationship with the dump and the people. Jerry, the art to me is the you know it's the death and rebirth process. But also within the objects that the artists created with, it really is a rebirth for the objects themselves. It's a second life for them. Uh, so the theme kind of continues. It makes sense that they're found objects having a new life. Yes, that's true. And I can tell you, in this country, we are we are so entitled. We you know we throw out the most incredible stuff. Not to mention all the food and everything else that gets thrown away while people do without. I think to realize we're in the midst of abundance, even with complete emptiness, you know, we could never, we could never complain about anything ever again if we just look around and see what, what's here now, because there is nothing we would need if we could see what is. But we become so entitled and we expect so much that, you know, we have to have everything exactly like everyone else, and we're not ever looking necessarily at what is. What is is an incredibly abundant, generous universe willing to deal it all out at any moment in the most creative way. But I think it means living creatively, and it's our birthright to do that, you know, rather than even especially this difficult time when so many people are experiencing poverty and loss, you know, I mean, it's like it's nothing compared to the world. And I don't mean to downplay it, but there's a gift in everything. I think we need this kind of creative potential to blossom in the struggle. I mean, that's what we're – it's all for a good reason. And if we're struggling financially, so you live with less. You can still live a beautiful life. So you become more of a human being to your neighbor. You help each other. You share more. I mean, there's something in everything. And I think that's the – that's the thing I had to learn. I was as entitled as an artist, hobnobbing in Soho and everywhere else, thinking I was the cool young artist, as, as, you know, as anyone who is, has a sense of excessive sense of entitlement. And I think it got shattered for me, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. And I think what's happening even in our country with the economy 
you know, it's just another incredible opportunity to become larger human beings. You talk about creativity. Um, I feel so deeply that our nature is creativity, that we are creative beings. And when we tap into that resource, it's quite magical. And that that is, you know, like the number one thing that we are is I feel we were created and we are still part of that creation. Um, you, you mentioned about um, God is the only truth. Um, can we talk about learning that and, and your journey towards that? Well, I mean, and in some ways, we dip, most of our choices, most of our, including our career choices, our security choices, most of what we do is based on fear. And fear can only create in, the, in its own likeness. You know, just like, it was, I guess, in some place in the Bible, it talks about, you know, the, the likeness, creating the likeness of God. Fear will do the, exactly the same thing. So all that we invest into security based on fear is always going to create more of itself. That's why, you know, the sort of insatiability of wealth, we never have enough to feel secure, you know? Our car is never shiny enough. Our, our husbands or wives never quite beautiful enough. I mean, there's just this insatiable nature to the, to the ego. I think when you know the only reality is that mystery, is that God, that becomes a whole other focus where you're always co-creating with something unknown. You know, you're not, you know, you're, you don't have a, a fixed goal and you know the way it's going to happen and the way it has to happen. And if it doesn't, then you pout. It's more like it's always, it's, a, it's an embodied living prayer where you're asking of each moment. Your whole life becomes a creative potential for the next possibility. And, you know, that's not just with art, but it's with everything. It's with raising a child if you have a child. It's with cooking a meal. You know, you do something, you, you know, you sort of don't go in with arrogance and knowing. You go in with mystery and embodied prayer. And what comes out of it, if you're cooking, will be a loaf of bread that touches the heart and not just the belly. I mean, I think it just has to be, and it's, I think it's who we are. I mean, if you look at Native cultures, everything was sacred. But how do you live that sacred life? You can't live it focused on materialism all the time. You know, living in fear all the time. It's about trust. It's about radical departures from the known constantly. And inspiration will always blow away any idea of ourselves. That's the nature of inspiration is it something comes through that's, you know, that doesn't embody the duality, you know, it could be this or this. Inspiration is always some, a third entity that comes out of the blue. And that's creativity. That's God. That's the mystery that we are here to express and be. Well, Jerry, thank you for sharing all that. Um, we have about 21 minutes left, and I'd like to talk about your special relationship and your beautiful wife, Marilyn, and um, how you allowed relationship back in your life. Well, yeah, that was kind of a scary transition because I was coming out of years of celibacy. But then I gave, but then I was opening up to the whole sexual energy, you know, in a kind of tantric way without even knowing the word at the time. But just feeling, again, living courageously, I, I describe it like, like the tide. 
you know, when the tide is all the way out, like I let go of everything I could possibly let go of, not because I wanted to, but because that's the where, that's where reality took me until there was nothing left. And when the tide goes out, there's something called slack tide, which is neither coming or going. And there's a stillness there. And then it returns. And I feel like, you know, the return was a scary, unknowing moment, not knowing if I was coming or going. And opening up to relationship was a part of that. Coming back to the world, you know, when they wanted to make the film about me, I was hesitant and, you know, I was a little nervous because I knew I finally, you know, in the letting go process, I finally said, I can do this. I can live on nothing. I can be nothing. And the moment I said, well, what a good boy am I? The God's up the ante. And that now it's time to go back to world. And that was, that was the terror, you know, like, am I selling out? And so one of the things that came up was certainly the whole sexual energetic exploration for, for several years, where just being in the kind of energy of sexuality, but not being that. And then slowly, and by the time marriage came along, it was like, it was so simple. It simply was. And it's very unromantic to talk about relationship that way. But, you know, when we when we fall so much in love and we want someone so badly, we can be damn sure there's a part of ourself that is missing that we're projecting onto that other person. And I think when we can go to relationship, end up there, because it really doesn't matter if, you, if you're in it or not, but simply because you love the person you're with, you know, you, it's... It was a given because everything else around that has fallen away and here you are with this other person that I think the simplicity of arriving at a relationship like that is the healthiest of all possibilities. I mean, in some way, it's the only way to do relationship. If there's some part of us that's missing and we expect someone to fulfill that, it'll never happen. The very thing we fall in love with we will end up resenting him for because we know it's it, we need to develop that in ourselves and that person has no business being it for us and yet we've handed over the store for that possibility and that becomes the failure of the relationship. The success of a relationship is to be again a whole person and you can do it just because it's a loving wonderful thing that you might choose to do and you can take it or leave it but you choose to do it and you do it with all of your heart and soul, with all the discipline and the and, and everything you've got to serve and to be present with another human being. And it's an incredibly beautiful gift if you can do it and you can arrive in that kind of a way. Uh, and uh, Marilyn got a tower. Tell us about Marilyn's tower. <laughs> <laughs> well... We have this cistern out in our yard. We live on this beautiful land right up against the Whitney Institute. There's hundreds of acres of trails. And, but on our land, there's a cistern. And Marilyn always wanted a, a little meditation space built on the top of it. And so I began gathering materials that people would give me, like this amazing thick cedar siding and different things would come or I'd find things, but I didn't know how to build. And so when we got married, I decided it was time. And, and to start with, there was a, a group of Sufi practitioners that part of their discipline was to work day and night for like 24 hours and, you know, without stopping, without eating and, and just work. And it was sort of this practice they did. 
And this group of Sufi practitioners asked if they, if I had anything on my land I wanted them to do that they could do their spiritual practice. So I said, great, come on <laughs> So I had these 12 people pull out all the nails from the boards and prepare all the materials I had to build this tower. And then when it was all ready to go, I just jumped in not knowing what I was doing. And I, in one summer, I built this 40-foot tower. It's only eight foot square inside, but it's 40 feet off the ground, like a big church steeple. That too is on our website if you want to see it. And, um, and, and then uh, and when it was done, I uh, was walking in the woods over by the Whidbey Institute. And I, because Marilyn was doing this Tibetan spiritual practice, and we wanted to have the tower blessed. And so we thought, well, it'd be great if we had a Tibetan monk who could bless it. And so when I was walking, this soccer ball flies into the bushes. And I see a monk with bare arms going into the nettles to get the ball. And I said, no, don't go into that, into the nettles. They'll sting you. And I went in with my long sleeves and got the ball. And I saw up on the field, there were nine Tibetan monks playing soccer who were visiting. They were sponsored by Richard Gere to do these sand mandalas. And so I asked that they'd come and bless the tower. So all nine of them piled into this eight-foot square space and did this 45-minute blessing, which is in the film. Our filmmakers were coming the day they did the blessing. So it's that the monks are in the film Blessing the Tower, which you can see for free on our website as well for anyone who wants to see the film. So this, this, this tower sort of came out of nothing, you know, out of found material and all this, you know, this magical stuff happened around it. Oh, and then when it was when I was completely done with it, and I built this this stairway that goes up ten feet out of tires and cement, and so it's very organic, free flowing, enormous stairway. And I was laying out on the lawn when it was done, and I said it, and I literally said out loud, "It's finally done." And the moment I said it, the phone rang in the house, and I and I went in and answered, and it was Laura Chester from Maine who was calling, she said, I, I hear you built a tower and I'm doing a book on sacred spaces, people's personal sacred spaces, and I want to come and photograph it and put it in my book. <laughs> so it ended, I mean, it was just an uncanny moment of, of perfection when I, it was exactly done. <laughs> I don't know how she heard about it, but she did. So, so it ended up, up. So it ended up in her book, right? Yes. Holy personal, it's called holy personal. So, um, you, everything in your life during your time of uh, being in New York and even on Whidbey Island, there's so many synchronicities in your world, all this magic going around. Um, tell us about uh, what that's like when, when those happen for you. Well, First, let me say, I don't think it's in my life. I think it's in life if we are not busy doing other things. I mean, I think if we court that mystery, it comes with the territory, and no one has a, a, a particular in with that possibility. It's our, it's our birthright. It's the nature of reality. So we all have access to it. So, I mean, I don't know. I live, I live for that mystery. I feel like it knows much better and does a much better job of, you know, allowing my life to unfold in the way it needs to than I do. So 
I don't know. When I don't see the miracles, I start to feel something's wrong, you know, and I and I go and reevaluate my activities or what I'm doing. I just think it's a part of who we are. It's a part of it's been around forever and it will always be around and if we choose to do other things and live in a fear-based reality, then that becomes our false god. Can you tell us about, in a way of, of sharing really advice for people about uh, surrender and trust and, and living a life of surrender and trust and, and not a life of struggle? Hmm. Well, in a lot of ways, when you when you ask yourself, what's the alternative, and really be honest with yourself, it's like that's probably the best impetus. It's the best discipline is, is, is to see what is and to see what actually gets created with, you know, the premise of fear. I mean, surrender isn't, isn't a foolhardy thing to do. It's realizing our limitations with, with what we think we know, with our physical reality, with our mental capacity, you know, with our creative ability. I think when we when we see the potential of the mystery, and we all have synchronistic moments, we all have those magical times when when we know, you know, the gods have shined upon us, you might say. I think to court and cultivate that as the reality is the best we can do. And it it it's got it has to come from the place of humility, of knowing you don't know. But it's not out of a weakness. It's out of an impeccable strength and determination to stay open, to stay open to the next moment, to stay open to the mystery. When you see fear slipping in sideways to take over the, and run the show, you know, to sort of holding it at bay. And it's not like we're ever going to defeat fear or we're ever going to not, you know, want to take refuge in security at one level or another. But I think the sort of fierce determination and conscious innocence it takes to stay open is about as good as it gets. And there is no, if you look at the alternative, it's all about limitation, as if we were going to beat death itself, you know. If we can just make ourselves secure enough, maybe death won't get us. But what happens if you already let the ego die, you know, let, the, let, let it go under, let it go down. That's surrender always surrendering that ego. What happens if you do that? What you find is that that is literally eternity. You know, the eternal. When it comes around again, you can always do it. That's eternity because what you'll find in whatever it is that appears to be a limitation, what you will find is inspired new reality. And that can become a way of life. And to cultivate and to court that possibility is as good as it gets. It's our life. It's what we're here to do. It's like we're not here to accumulate comforts and wealth because it's all going to it's going to go to dust just like our bodies are. So why bother? I mean, what are we here to do? We're here to be fully alive and inspired and to inspire other people. How do you live that kind of reality? That's what we're here to do. That's our potential. And if we choose something smaller, you'll see your your alternative is no alternative at all. There's it's the only game in town if you ask me. Jerry, do you feel that we are all artists and that art is life? Absolutely. I think we're all creative no matter what you call it. It, it takes real creativity to raise a child. It takes real creativity to, to cook beautiful, healthy, 
you know, enlivening food. It, it takes creativity to sit in the cave alone and to stay happy. I mean, creativity is inspiration and no one's got a, a, a handle on it. It's like we can't hand that one over to the artist and say, but I'm not an artist. Because, you know, I gave up art because it was too small a container for creativity. You know, I got, I have it back now, but it's only a component of the totality. It's all creative. I mean, everything we do is either creative or it's, or it's, you know, it's a fixed, uh, calcified reality. Creativity is inspiration. It blows out the form always. It will always do that. It's always a radical departure from the known. That's the nature of creation. It's the nature of inspiration. And we're terrified of it, you know, and the more conservative we become, the more fundamental we become, it's all based on being smaller and not larger. When you're larger, you can always embrace change. You can always embrace the radical new possibility that inspires new life. I mean, I almost see it like there's consciousness is being channeled down through us human beings and all beings for that matter. And, and there's a kind of evolution constantly in process that no one can stop. So how do we participate in that in that unfolding, in that complete dance? That's creation, to be at one with what is coming through the collective, you might say. And everyone has access to it. However much we choose to block it or not, if you want to look at unhappy, unhealthy people, you can be damn sure it's those of us blocking that energy, blocking that possibility for something more beautiful, something more inspired. Jerry, do you feel we're all... I've noticed as things are changing that we are all almost angels and guides for each other, um, that we're, we're here for each other so much. We don't need to connect as much with spirit as we connecting with each other. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's like an Easter egg. Hunt. If you're, if you're, um, if you're stalking the mystery constantly, Sometimes that mystery will show up as a bag lady screaming in your face and, and it'll be pure poetry or it'll shake you out of your complacency or it'll be a little child handing you a flower just when you thought the world was the most horrible place. Or, I mean, I think the gods will manifest beauty in all forms when you stalk the mystery. It'll also happen in complete silence. It'll happen in your meditation. It'll happen when there's no sign of anyone around. But I think you don't discriminate. You're open and you see. And you know, there's a, there's a Hindu tale about a swan that can drink watered down milk and drink only the milk. I think a, a healthy spiritual life is the ability to do that. You can, you ultimately find the mystery the magic, the God in all experiences. And you also know what's water. You have to be wise like the devil. You know, you know what's nonsense. You know what's distraction. You know, you can discriminate. A, a healthy, positive discrimination is very important, you know, to be able to, to see what's, what's garbage and what's beauty. But it's everywhere, you know. But I think generally speaking, we're a very external culture in America, particularly you know, that's why we're so materialistic and why our government is going under because of greed, because our God is more of everything, you know, more money, more power. And, 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 and generally speaking, that is our sin. You know, our sin is that we've lost touch with that spirit, with that mystery, with that expectation that something external is going to save us. 
you know, but our discrimination and our view has to be and from the inside out. It can't be like somebody out there, something out there is going to save us, whether it's a relationship or enough money or, or only the nice experiences or, you know, only the good people who we hang around with. I mean, there is nothing external is that's going to save us. When we know that, we start courting that mystery and we find what is of value. Jerry, this I absolutely love uh, your book, your art, and talking with you. We have a few minutes left. I want to remind everyone of your website, which you share with Marilyn and the work that she does, handsofalchemy.com. Alchemy is my favorite word. I absolutely love alchemy. And uh, the book that you've written is The Inspired Heart, an Artist's Journey of Transformation. And uh, it's filled with uh, wisdom. And it's a fascinating story, but I really feel that you touch people at a time when they're ready for their own personal death and rebirth process, which to me is a daily process, really, that goes on as we keep uh, growing and transforming. Um, We have just a few minutes left. You've shared so much with us. What... um, what do you do now? You, you, you travel around and you, you do share your work with people. And, and how many, what other things are you involved with? Well, the big thing right now is this new feature film. I'm working with um, a Danish filmmaker, as I said, Hans Fabian uh, Wellenweber, who's a world-class filmmaker. And it's been a really big project. And now I'm taking on the actual Um, a lot of the writing, you know, we've been working together and there's just this whole new piece that's falling into place that I'm going to be doing a lot more of that, but that's been a pretty intense focus. And I'm also doing, you know, my, I continue doing my artwork. I'm just finishing up a new piece that will be on our website soon. And I do a lot of speaking. I'm just back actually from Madison and Illinois and New York. Um, where I did a, a slideshow and talk at the uh, Chazen Art Museum. And, you know, I do whatever comes up, whatever I'm asked to do. And, you know, and however it happens, you know, people bring me or, or host my events or I'll get a grant or somebody will, you know, one way or another make it happen. And I'm, I just keep myself available. It's what I've always done, except it's just gotten a little larger and more, a lot more sophisticated in a certain sense, but I'm still just calling on the moment and watching, watching each moment for what it is and seeing what I need to do. Seeing the magic in everything, huh? Well, and I still struggle with that, just like everybody else. Yes. <laughs> Jerry, I am so hoping. I'm looking forward to meeting you, and I would really love it if. Uh, Someday you can come here to Ashland and share your magic and your art with everyone here. It's, it would be really fantastic. I would absolutely love that. Or come to Whidbey Island and visit me. I have visitors all the time. You're welcome here as well. Uh, thank you. I'm looking forward to that so much. Um, uh, your art can be found at handsofalchemy.com, and your book is amazing, and I look forward to um Giving it as gifts to people because I think that it's a wonderful gift book for people going through transformation. And um, something that is really interesting is the humor you bring to things also. There's a lot of humor in the book, which I really enjoy. <laughs> well, thank you. 
Thank you so much, Jerry, for joining us today. And I thank everyone who has spent this time with us. Sending love from my home to yours, I am Pleiadian Emissary of Light, Caroline Roth.